Good Morning New Community. It uh, should come as no surprise that recently in a service we had some technical difficulties and the talk was not recorded. So this is me re-recording the talk. So it may not sound exactly like you heard on the given morning that it was shared, but hopefully it will capture the essence of what we talked about in our Paradox series. I would encourage you, uh, during the service, we read from a couple texts to start our time. We read out of Genesis 1, 28 to 31, Genesis 2, 1 to 3, and then Deuteronomy 5, 12 to 15. I would encourage you to just hit pause, read through those sections as we look this morning at the idea of paradox between work and rest. Now, when it comes to the paradox, paradox of work and rest, the very reason that I think this demands our attention is that we have a clear teaching in Scripture to do both. So we're commanded from the Scriptures to subdue the earth, to have dominion over it, to work six days. This idea of labor is one of our first mandates. And kind of infused in work is this inherent dignity and beauty and creativity. We're also commanded to rest. We're commanded to observe the Sabbath. And it's not something that's suggested, it's commanded, like 10 commandment level commanded. And both of these distinct callings are expectations that I believe create a symmetry of life in the kingdom of God. And it seems that these ideas of work and rest have as much relevance today as perhaps any time in our history. Our culture is a work hard, play hard ethos. This mentality to drive hard and the crash hard flails against these ideas of balance and symmetry. I routinely will hear stories of people driven by work, neglecting sleep, demanding production, ignoring their bodies and their health for expectations and demands that our culture creates around this subject of work. I also hear stories of people um, kind of trying to experience Sabbath, but doing so filled with gluttony and entitlement and binging and ignoring people and being driven almost to rest to the point of excess. And both of these ideas of rhythm or both of these ideas of work and rest need countercultural rhythms. They need to find structure and meaning and purpose. And some of this symmetry in the paradox between work and rest will actually allow for our flourishing. Now, I can't cover everything that I intend or would love to cover about this symmetry between work and rest. But what I want to do over these next few moments is just talk about two concepts related to Sabbath and then some principles that may allow for our flourishing. First idea comes out of Genesis 2, and it's the idea that Sabbath is holy. The text says, And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, one of the most distinguished words in the scriptures is the word kadosh, meaning holy. 
Holy is a word that perhaps more than any other is representative of the mystery and the majesty of the divine. And I think what is informative for us is that the first use of the word holy is not to describe a person or a deity. It's not to describe an altar or a temple or a tabernacle. The first and unique occasion in which holy is used is it's reserved for the story of creation and specifically applied to the concept of time. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. The time and the space is endowed with a quality of holiness. So Sabbath is not some afterthought of creation. It is, in many ways, the very pinnacle of the creation week. It's a moment where God as the divine rests and declares everything to be good. So while Sabbath is holy, I think at the same time we have forgotten our birthright. We have forgotten that Sabbath or rest is a birthright built into the very fabric of creation. In fact, Sabbath is part of being called God's people. See, God creates Sabbath and he tells his people that if they do not practice it, it's actually a sign that they're not truly his people, that they haven't understood what he has created for them. And in the scriptures, God creates this unique juxtaposition between being people of Sabbath or people that are subject to slavery. The text kind of describes it this way. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. See, Sabbath is an act of liberation. It is a way of defying slavery. See, slaves, by definition, cannot stop working. They don't have a choice. And Sabbath is a way of saying that we are no longer slaves, that we possess the ability to say to our souls that work does not define us. Danielle Strickland makes this statement concerning Sabbath. She says, surely this is why the Sabbath is all the rage these days. It's like a rediscovery of our birthright, like a lost treasure buried so long ago that no one knew where to find it. Surely there is a cry to be heard in the oppression of depression, sleeping disorders, and elevated stress levels of both people and the earth. Surely there's a cry to be heard in cows injected with growth hormones to grow unnaturally fat or fast because none of us can wait a single day or hour or minute for what we want. None of us can stop working, not ever, not even think about it because we are more inclined towards money and status and success than relationship, beauty, and freedom. That's the definition of slavery. You can't stop working. So how do we find this symmetry between the Sabbath that is holy and work? I think one of the first ways to do that is this principle that we should acknowledge the effects of overproduction. I heard a story a while back, I've, I've shared it, I'm sure, in the past at New Community. There was a story of an archaeologist who had hired some native tribes individuals to kind of lead him and his team to a dig site deep in the mountains. 
And he hired this crew of tribesmen and they began to kind of march into the mountains and into the woods and his whole crew and all of their gear started to follow. And it, they'd been moving for a while and they seemed to be getting to where they needed to get. And then all of a sudden, without any warning, the tribesmen stopped and he insisted that they would go no further. And he just sat there. His whole crew kind of sat around him and the archaeologist continued to wonder what was going on. He grew in anger. He grew in impatience. And finally, he went up to the head tribesman and he said, come on, we have stuff to do. We need to go further. Stop sitting around. Let's go. But the tribesman never moved. He continued to rest. And then finally, without warning, all of the tribesmen stood up, picked up their gear, and started walking again. The archaeologist and his team followed, and they kept going for a while. And finally, the archaeologist caught up to the tribesmen. And he said, I got to ask you a question. Why did you stop? And why did you stop for so long? And the tribesmen said this, we had been moving too fast and had to wait for our souls to catch up. See, I think we are in a culture that is waiting for its soul to catch up. And we find it difficult to acknowledge this reality. We have a hard time acknowledging that we cannot have it all. We're somehow fighting this illusion that you can have everything to its fullest amount and in no way will that affect you. That you can have the highest level of your career that you desire, all while maintaining the highest level of family time and interaction, all while maintaining the highest level of personal health and well-being, and the highest level of friendships and hobbies and wealth and community involvement, and I could go on and on. We're fighting this reality, and in the midst of fighting it, I think we are in a state of compromise. We compromise our schedules, we compromise boundaries, we compromise our health, our family, our faith. And we have to acknowledge that we cannot have it all. We have to stop outrunning our souls. And Sabbath is this declaration of freedom. Bell makes this statement. Sabbath is taking a day a week to remind myself that I did not make the world and that it will continue to exist without my efforts. Sabbath is a day when my work is done, even if it isn't. Sabbath is a day when my job is to enjoy, period. Sabbath is a day when I'm fully available to myself and to those I love most. Sabbath is a day when I remember that when God made the world, he saw that it was good. Sabbath is a day when I produce nothing. Sabbath is a day when at the end I say, I didn't do anything and I don't add and I feel so guilty. Sabbath is a day when my phone is turned off, I don't check my email and you can't get a hold of me. See, Sabbath is a choice to live into your birthright as a child of God and to consider the Sabbath holy. It's a choice not to be a slave to culture's expectations, your family's hopes, 
your school's demands, your own insecurities, your desired status. Sabbath is a declaration of freedom. And Sabbath is also our bride. In Exodus 28, we're reminded of this statement, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. In Jewish custom on Friday nights in the synagogue, a song is sung that states, come my beloved to greet the bride. See, the understanding is that the beloved is God and the bride is Sabbath, the bride of the people. The holy word The Hebrew word, keep it holy, denotes marriage. So it's essentially as if God is saying, remember my promise to Shabbat and be sure to marry her. Abraham Joshua Heschel says it this way. When the people of Israel stood before the mountain of Sinai, the Lord said to them, remember that I said to the Sabbath, the community of Israel is your mate. Hence, remember the Sabbath day to sanctify it. The Hebrew word, la kadesh, to sanctify, means in the language of the Talmud to consecrate a woman to betroth. Thus, the meaning of the word on Sinai was to impress upon Israel the fact that their destiny is to be the groom of the sacred day, the commandment to espouse the seventh day. Because Sabbath is our bride. But I believe we have made our marriage an obligation or selfish entitlement. See, to remember the Sabbath day is a command. In the scriptures, remembering is much more than a mental activity. It's not the recollection uh, or the assembly of information. Biblical remembering is the acknowledging of essential truth. It's letting the truth fill your mind and then shape your life. It means it's something you own or believe or apply. So to remember the Sabbath day is to fix it in your mind as important and to have that shape your life. And as with any gift, it can be something that we undervalue or take for granted or feel entitled to or use it selfishly. Sabbath should not feel like a duty you have to get through. It should not be a space and time you dread. It should not be something you just have to follow. Nor should you take the birthright like a prodigal son and squander it. Selfishly use it, ignore others, demand alone time, binge in excess, relationally drop off the map. So the question again becomes, how do we find this symmetry between work and Sabbath? I want to give you a few practical suggestions for remembering the Sabbath. The first is to find a ritual to mark the beginning. Judith Shulovitz describes this idea. She says, most people believe all you have to do to stop working is not work. The inventors of the Sabbath understood, though, that it is much more complicated undertaking to rest. You cannot casually downshift. It's not easy. This is why the Jewish and Puritan Sabbaths were so exactingly intentional. Even our secular leisure activities cannot do for us what Sabbath rituals can do. For religious rituals do not exist just to promote togetherness. They are designed to convey to us a certain story about who we are. The story told by the Sabbath is the story of creation 
God rested and we rest in order to honor the image of the divine in us, to remind us that there is more to us than our work. The machinery of self-censorship must shut down in order to rest, stilling the internal murmur of self-reproach. So when Jewish people celebrate Sabbath, they start with a dinner. They start with benedictions prayed over each other. They sit with family and relish the freedom and the goodness that exists in the space between them. The occasion is often marked with a toast, Shabbat Shalom, rest and peace. And this ritual marks the beginning of the holy. So perhaps you come up with some sign that signifies to you that you're done with your emails, that your calls have been completed, that your phone is off, that your work is ended. My encouragement to you is to find a ritual to mark the beginning of Sabbath. The second idea would be to celebrate. See, Sabbath is a day that God stood back, so to speak, and appreciated his creation. The Genesis account indicates that God rested from his work, at least partly in order to enjoy it. So throughout Genesis 1 and 2, we see God viewing all that he has made and repeating over and over again, it is good. It is good. And I believe this is something we can mimic about God, to simply take time to enjoy the beauty of God's world, to set aside time to appreciate the gifts we possess, both tangible and intangible, to celebrate, to appreciate, to enjoy. Another idea would be to cease from that which is necessary. Mark Buchanan makes this statement, to approach Sabbath with synodokic imagination and to free Sabbath-keeping from the demands of the other days of the week One thing is indispensable, to cease from that which is necessary. This is Sabbath's golden rule, the one rule to which all other rules distill. Stop doing what you ought to do. There are six days to do what you ought, six days to be caught in the web of economic and political and social necessity, and then one day to take wing. It's the one day when the only thing you must do is not do the things you must. You get to shuck the have-tos and lay hold of the get-tos. When I was growing up, um, my father would often communicate to me 1 Corinthians 10.31, which says, whatever you do, whether, uh, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And the idea was, at least how I understood it, everything you do, you should put your whole self into. And you do everything. It doesn't matter what it is. If it's as simple as eating or drinking, do it all to the glory of God. And what that created in some ways in me was this drivenness to do everything to its fullness, to excellence, to its highest standard, which is awesome. But I don't think it conveyed to me at the same time that I could do nothing to the glory of God, that I could take a nap to the glory of God, that I could eat some dessert to the glory of God, that I could play a game to the glory of God, 
that I could hang out with family and friends to the glory of God, that I could lay hold of the get-tos. And it takes in us a shift to move from what is necessary and the ought-tos or the shoulds in life and move into the get-tos. Buchanan goes on to say, and I'll close with this, there are many things, eating ice cream, diving off cliffs, sleeping in on Saturday mornings with no particular usefulness connected to them. They don't need to be done. Nobody insists, and the world is left unchanged by our doing them or not. They add nothing to the gross national product. They enhance our intellect not one bit. Accomplishment is the least of their concerns. But they just might make us feel more alive, more ourselves, and that's use enough. Indeed, many other uses might follow after this. But I want to make something very clear. Though play benefits us, the minute we do it for its benefit is the minute it ceases to be play. Play is subversive, really. It subverts business as usual. It subverts necessity. It subverts taskmaster-supervised legalism-steeped activities that mark out most of our lives, that make us oh-so-useful but bland and sullen in our usefulness. I'd encourage you to cease from that which is necessary. I threw some questions on the screen at the end of the service. I just want to read those questions for you. These are for consideration. These are for discussion in small group or when you hang out with a friend. Ask these questions of Sabbath. What would your life look like if you consistently reminded yourself that the world didn't revolve around you? What would your life look like if you released all that concerned you, set aside your to-do list, and spent time enjoying the space between things, the space described as holy? What would it look like instead of gripping tight and always hustling, you injected some Sabbath into your life? How would it change you? How would it impact those around you? What would it do for your family? How would your stress level change? Would it be enough to remind you that you are not a slave? Would it convince you that the world is in God's hands and you do not carry the weight of it? Would it free you to pay attention to your soul and would it allow the freedom of Sabbath to work its way into the very fabric of your everyday life. Sabbath is holy, and it is our birthright. Shabbat Shalom. Rest in peace.